0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm joined once again by my good friend Dale Stenberg, and we are here in light of Advent season to talk to the rest of you about the mysterious doctrine of the Incarnation, the wonderful truth that in the person of Jesus Christ, the nature of Godhood and the nature of manhood are mysteriously united in a person. Uh, This is uh, one of the most difficult doctrines in the Christian faith for obvious reasons. I suppose there's a debate out there about how, uh, uh, w- w- whether the Trinity or the hypostatic union are the most difficult doctrines in the Christian faith. And I'm glad to tell all of you that Dale is here to explain all of that. That's
1: you. right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, Uh, More seriously, Dale and I have been reflecting on this through the last week. We were, uh, we just read, uh, reread, I suppose, the chapter in Lewis' book, Miracles. Yeah. Uh, The the grand miracle, Lewis calls it. Uh, You know, he spends what, what, Dale, maybe two-thirds of the book setting up his discussion of the grand miracle. uh, And it's only after kind of establishing, you know, the existence of the supernatural and then the probability and possibility of miracles that he then begins with this, this miracle of the incarnation and so what we'll do today is just think aloud i suppose about that about that precious truth uh, and maybe put it in ways that are helpful for us uh, graspable for us to understand a little bit more so yeah uh, uh, dale maybe i'll throw it over to you to sort of get us started here
1: sure yeah you know you mentioned lewis um and being able to grasp it, it is a difficult, uh, doctrine. And I suppose that Christians just need to, I guess, start with acknowledging that, um, mm. we, we should acknowledge that this is, uh, by all, you know, reasonable, um, operations, something that is weird to the world when we mm. talk about God becoming man, um, And I think that that was not lost on Lewis either, um, and the reformed tradition at large. Hmm. Uh, So it's okay, Christian, I guess, uh, this uh, Advent season to say, yeah, I get it. This sounds a little odd. Um, But in that vein, I think what Lewis is trying to do, at least in that book, um, and what others have done, Bavink, I know we'll bring him up in a little bit, is try to explain it in, in a reasonable way. And, um, you know, I think for Bavink and also for Lewis, they view the Incarnation as sort of the central doctrine that pulls together all the strands of not only miracles, generally speaking, but of the story of Christianity, as we find in, in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the Incarnation, you don't have Christianity Uh, It's unique to the Christian religion because it's um, God uh, not existing within a locked system of reality, but outside of it. He is distinct from his creation, and the creator invades his creation, takes the form of his creatures, uh, lives a life, dies, comes back to life, and through that we have eternal life in him. Uh, this is very different than you know the ancient uh, pagan traditions and even some of the Eastern uh, traditions in our contemporary world. Um, but I suppose that starting with the creature-creator distinction is really helpful if we're going to understand why this is called a miracle.
0: Um,
1: yeah. and, and that's important because if it's just a matter of the... God, the deity existing within the realm of nature and take and manifesting himself in a particular way in that realm, well, then that's not so miraculous, right? I mean, we see these sorts of things like in caterpillars, uh, we see this sort of metamorphoses or this change or these personas uh, that are adopted by other deities the unique thing about Christianity is that God is not in nature. He is the God of nature. And that's something that Lewis sort of uh, reminds the reader in that grand miracle chapter over and over again, there's a distinction to be drawn between the nature. Yeah. Yeah, It's
0: not, it's not precisely the same thing as like, you know, Zeus turning into a goose to spy on people or something like that. Right. Where, where the, the Zeus that turns into that goose or whatever it is is a is a is a god in in a, in a particular sense, but he's not outside at least in as much as he's portrayed that way. There's other ways of portraying Zeus, but in as much as Zeus is portrayed that way, he's not outside the whole totality that is nature and the fates and that sort of thing. So it does it's not shocking that there's that that level of incarnation, which you find really. Throughout, kind of every tradition, you find some sense of sort of God taking on a kind of avatar, a sort of sort of a spectral avatar existence that floats around and that sort of thing. Right. And Lewis will recognize that there's a there's a rough similarity of pattern uh, in those things that that the incarnation is sort of the truth maker of all of those motifs, if you will, the one God who does die and rise, um, and yet for Christians there's a metaphysical problem because Uh, the God that dies and rises, the God that actually comes and takes on humanity is outside, as you just said, the entire course of nature. He intrinsically is not the kind of thing that dies. He is intrinsically the living one. Uh, And so what a lot of the tradition will do to clarify this is to say, you need to think of uh, the incarnation as an event in the history of the world. It's not a thing it's not as though there's something about the divine nature itself that morphs. Rather, what exists is a new thing in creation which is uniquely and mysteriously identified with the agency of God such that we can say that this, the 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 one person of the logos, the second person of the trinity, is also the agent uh, that is in this man Jesus. Um and putting together exactly how that works, of course, is quite mysterious. And there's, there's a couple of proposals one might throw out there. Of course, the whole Christological controversies in some sure. way are yeah, an right. attempt to understand how that works. Lewis, in a sense, what's, what's helpful about Lewis's chapter is that he's actually trying to get us to, to think of the logic in a broader way. That is to say, he's trying to say something like... Um, uh, so, so, the way Lewis sets it up is, he says, you know, if the incarnation happened, if God actually did, in some mysterious way, take on the properties of a create of a creature of Jesus Christ, then it's the central event in history. It's it's the main thing. There's right. no way that that actually happened, and that it's not the main center pre- piece of this human story that we're all a part of. Um, And because of that, what Lewis wants to say is, because it's the central thing, it's not something we make sense of in light of other things about the story. It's the thing that actually makes sense itself of everything else in the story. And so, you know, going back to those pagan dying and rising god myths it's not that those things make sense out of the Incarnation it's that the Incarnation makes sense out of that that gesture of man that sensibility that man has that there's this traffic there, 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 there's got to be this traffic between the world of the divine and the world of man that looks something like this man is kind of agitating for this for this uh, for this union uh, 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 sort of has an uh, uh, an itch, if you will, that needs to be scratched, that God and man come together in a sort of unique way. And it's the incarnation that makes sense out of why that motion of man exists. And Lewis does this with a bunch of things. You know, he basically says, um, in a way, what he's doing in the chapter, the grand miracle is not, he's not so much explaining the incarnation in in a kind of deductive, logical way. He's saying, the things that we, the, the, the mystery of the incarnation, which was a controversial claim, is already ple- present. The, the kind of tension that we see there is already present in all of these features of reality, which are less controversial. Precies. So, for instance, in, um, uh, in Miracles, you know, the first two thirds of the book is just Lewis setting up the idea that the supernatural has invaded the natural Uh, through the use of reason. So, you know, we're rational animals. Here we are. We have brains and bodies and neurons firing. Even as we're talking right now, our brains are, you know, sending electricity signals to move our mouths and all this sort of thing. And yet Lewis makes this very rigorous and it's very excellent. You really should read it. A very rigorous and fine-grained argument that what's going on in this conversation that Dale and I are having right now and you, the, the listener, are hearing is profoundly supernatural human conversation and reason the light of reason as a receptacle through which we receive reality and notice its pattern is not something that nature is doing but is the invasion of supernature into the into the natural physical cosmos and that's Um, again, so he's, he's already established that in the book over the course of 150 or 200 pages that this is a net, this claim is a a fairly airtight claim. And he, you know, he deals with all those, he deals way ahead of time with the issues of neuroscience, you know, that are now so popular sort of claiming that souls and, you know, the the immaterial doesn't exist. Lewis very adeptly and I, I think ably handles those objections, um. Nevertheless, what Lewis wants to say then is, is like, we already see a kind of fusion, a kind of unity of the natural and the supernatural, just as being human beings, that that we, that seems so obvious to us only because it actually exists and we're inside of it. In other words, it's only by getting used to it because, well, you know, what else are we, but this kind of interesting, very mysterious union, you know, how does the the how does the spiritual and the material work together? You know that kind of thing. Um, it, only because we're so used to it, have we actually uh, forgotten to some extent how profoundly weird it is? <laughs> yes. You know that these two things actually intersect. And so what Lewis tries to do through a good portion of the chapter, the Grand Miracle, is sort of show how there's a fittingness. What you see is the fittingness of the fittingness of creation. Uh, to, to kind of match things that we already observe about reality. Uh, and and he, uh, we'll talk about maybe a couple of those things in a moment. I'll, I'll shut up after this. He uses a helpful analogy of, um, uh, you know, imagine that you had, um, you know, imagine something like you had uh, three acts of a four act Shakespeare play, right? And you, let's say you're an expert in Shakespeare and you know, there's the missing fourth act of the Shakespeare play. And then somebody, you know, in grandma's attic in England or whatever discovers, oh oh, 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 crap. You know, I think I found the fourth act of the Shakespeare play, you know? So what would happen? Experts would go look at the, would go look at that fourth act and And so Lewis, what Lewis says is, how would you determine if it was really Shakespeare, right? You know, like you don't have direct access to, you know, Shakespeare writing it with his hand, you know, so how do we figure out that it's Shakespeare? Well, what you would do is see, does it fit the play? Does it, uh, is it intention with the play? Uh, Is it intention with the writings of Shakespeare? And if it is at every point kind of an inconvenience, even if it started like, oh, this really fits, but then on close the closer you inspect it, the more it just, you know, the, the the unity of what's going on in Shakespeare and even in that play with this act, it just doesn't quite work. You'd get suspicious. Maybe this isn't Shakespeare. Maybe this is somebody, you know, kind of writing that fourth act, you know, the way they thought it should go down. But what if you looked at it and even if initially you thought this is weird, but the more closely you examined it, you, you know, you look at the details and you're like, oh no, that's that has all the idioms of Shakespeare. And actually, if you internalize it and read it carefully, it raises up the rest of those three acts. It actually shows their coherence. It actually ties all the the loose threads that that are going about in those other three acts together. And it ties the whole corpus together. It relates to the corpus in a kind of resonant way. this is sort of how lewis thinks about the incarnation the the kind of metaphysical problems that come up with the incarnation not precisely but at least analogously exist with all these other things that we just take for granted about reality but then when you put in the piece of the incarnation god invades and we in some mysterious way stare at it and say okay god seems to have invaded here and then we let that kind of percolate in our minds and then go back to reality. What it does to reality is not so much like, oh, all of reality works this way, and oh, the incarnation, I guess that's just a weird thing on top of all this other stuff. All of a sudden, it's more like, oh, no, the incarnation actually is a light shining on all the other stuff and makes sense out of why it is precisely what and as it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the uh, metaphor uh, that he uses is he says, how do you know that at noonday, the sun is shining? It's not because you can see the sun clearly. He said, in fact, you cannot see the sun clearly. It's because by the light of the sun, you see everything else clearly. And that's the incarnation for Lewis. And that's what you're drawing our attention to. And I think that that's right. And then he goes on, he sets about a a lengthy argument to show how the incarnation is actually in an uh, an analogous way, uh, just part of nature. And he begins with man, and he talks about how man is created as a composite uh, being, being made up of a supernatural soul and a body, a physical body. So the supernatural is uh, conjoined with the natural. And this is because that's showing us something about God, reasonableness, but it's also laying the uh, foundation, the groundwork for God coming into creation as man. The difference, because, uh, and this is where we get into um, analogies and, uh, th- and language, I think you began, started at the beginning, how do we actually use language to talk about the hypostatic union? It seems like an impossible task, uh, but God created the world and he gave us reason for a purpose and we're supposed to use it this way. But uh, that, the, the idea that man is a supernatural spirit wedded with a natural body points to the fact that God, a supernatural being, is going to come in and take on to him his nature, uh, the nature of a human. Uh, but he does this in, in other ways, too. He talks about how um, uh, this concept of the greater penetrating, moving into the lower, the lesser, is uh, found in agriculture for example. Mm-hmm. And he uses uh, he uses the example of uh, when you are planting crops and you throw seeds into the soil, well, the seed actually decays and dies. And out of that emerges new life, uh, the corn stalk. Uh, and he's got this wonderful, uh, he's assuming objections, which as an interlocutor, Lewis is one of the most just wonderful people to I could imagine debating him and he would just be so kind to like say actually what your objection should sound like and he's just going to make it more robust than I could ever make my own objection right um uh he's he says well if that's the case if we just see a corn kernel go into the soil die and then emerge as a new corn stalk and that people have noticed that since we've been planting corn then why not develop a religion similar to the corn king, right? Like why, why isn't that a more plausible explanation for a deity than Yahweh? And uh, Lewis says, that's true. People have done that all the time and it's actually not that unreasonable. Right. Uh, uh, right. And, and, and then he moves on to talk about Jesus and feeding the five or, or when Jesus picks up uh a loaf of bread at uh, the last supper, he says, this is my body, right? And Lewis says, how could he not understand that he's holding a loaf of bread made from corn and he is uh, equating himself to that uh, loaf of bread? How could he not then assume or sort of like grab the, the attention of the disciples and say, see, I'm the corn king? Uh, what Lewis says is, well, the reason he doesn't do that is the same reason that if you found a sea monster, um, the sea monster is the thing, and he wouldn't be really aware of the idea of sea monsters, because he's just the thing, right? Yeah, right. Or sea serpent, I think he says, sea serpent. And that's, that's Lewis's whole point is that what Jesus is, is the archetype For all of these patterns. And it was so outside of the context of Israel at the time to bring up something like the corn king, but that pattern is already ingrained in the psyche of the Israelites that he doesn't need to draw an analogy. He just presents himself as the thing that everybody has been waiting for. Right, And I suppose um, what Lewis is pointing to is uh, the natural pattern that we see in reality of a sort of descent and then an ascent. Uh, it's the strong man stooping down under a heavy burden, and just when you think it's going to break him, he lifts everything up. Right. So, and that's right. what that's what Christ is. The incarn- incarnation is the descent, and then the re- the resurrection is the ascent. And this is very scriptural. But he also uses two other principles that maybe we can talk about uh, that he points to that would be. Um, reasonable ways to think about uh proving the veracity of the christian claims of the incarnation that's selectiveness and then vicariousness so he talks about selectiveness being a characteristic of nature herself uh nature herself sort of um selects the strong things and is wasteful with the resources of the weak things right so
0: Right,
1: the the hyena will attack a gazelle and eat their full, and then leave uh, the rest of the meat and the carcass to sort of deteriorate. Right. It's it's wasteful. Right. But then there's the idea of vicariousness, which is also a characteristic of nature herself, wherein communities uh, actually can only survive on selflessness on giving up my the pursuit of my own passions and my own desires, so that I can create a reciprocal, uh, re, uh, a mutually beneficial relationship between me and other people, so that we all flourish together. You cannot exist by yourself on an island. You right. And, and, right. The-
0: and so, yeah, so the incarnation becomes sort of like this way in which it, it's the paradigm of nature invading, or supernature invading nature. It's the paradigm of sort of the the descent all the way into death in this case, you know, not just into manhood, but into into a world of death, so that we can reascend uh, into life through the agency of this divine person, and then, you know, in his resurrection, the whole, you know, the whole new world, the whole, you know, new regeneration of, of the cosmos occurs in principle in his own body and then is extended um and then again yes that principle of selectiveness it's in the incarnation if, if we want to think that like if the incarnation is the centerpiece around which the whole is kind of ordered you know that central thing the principle of selectiveness you know he shows like the chosenness of the israelites the right. chosenness of man amongst all the species and, and you could even extend this in our modern cosmic knowledge You know, the idea that like, you know, we're floating on this planet right now, and there's this whole solar system that's, for all we know, fairly empty. And maybe there are many solar, maybe there's solar systems that aren't empty, you know, we don't know for sure, but it's plausible that many solar, there's many solar systems that are empty and that we're a a very unique one. Um, And that, you know, all of that structure, all of that canvas that God has created is for this small thing. And then it gets even smaller, you know, coalescing in just the person of, of the Christ himself. And then finally, yes, that principle of vicariousness that all of life is a matter of investing Uh, a a matter of the stronger investing themselves into the weaker, that the life of others comes from the expenditure of another, and that you see that principle in operation as well. In the incarnation, the fact that reality works that way is sort of, I think the way Lewis is putting it is those are the, uh, you might say those are, that's the you know, the the individual colors on the painting palette that the artist has to paint the picture of the incarnation, because it's all of those threads coming together in a singularity that actually sort of puts the incarnation as the thing that makes sense out of why those colors exist in a sense for the sake of making this painting. Uh, This is the central thing. Yeah, Uh, yeah. and so... um, and he's really just listing four. I mean, in a way, like one helpful thing about leading the, reading this chapter is that you could be thrown into thinking uh, uh, more holistically. Um, uh, I was going to read a quote from Bavink because Bavink also thinks something like this, you know, where Bavink is on the one hand trying to think of the manner in which the various structural features of reality. Uh, sort of are the scaffolding or the, the, the hues, if you will, on which God paints the central image of the Christ, who's the central figure in the history that he's making out of, out of, out of the various pieces of reality. Um, but one of the, you know, when we think in terms of just structure, like a canvas, we tend to think in terms of, you know, again, these kind of timeless principles. It's interesting also to think in terms of history you know, there's one yes. of the principles is actually emotion itself. It's a story. And to think of like the, um, yeah, to think of like how all of a, a bunch of pieces come together to make a picture, perhaps biases the image a little bit. It's a little different to say how all the threads of a narrative come together to centralize a character. That's yes. a different kind of centrality. Uh, and Bovink has this great quote in um. Uh, the philosophy of revelation if you all haven't read it uh, though i'm reading from this old edition uh if you do want to read the philosophy of revelation and you absolutely should it's kind of bobbing sort of greatest sort of sort of mind warp if you will and that's hmm. saying a lot for bobbing get the newer edition with uh, Corey Brock, uh, edited by Corey Brock, uh, my friend, and my other good friend, Nathaniel gray yeah. Uh,
1: This
0: edition of The Philosophy of Revelation, because it's annotated and has a lot of you know, notes about who's interacting with. But I'll read the quote out of the old edition because it's the one I'm familiar with. This is in a chapter called Revelation and History, Bavinck writes. Uh, Revelation gives us a division, quote, Revelation gives us a division of history, There is no history without division of time, without periods, without progress and development. But now take Christ away. The thing is impossible, for he has lived and died, has risen from the dead, and lives to all eternity. And these facts cannot be eliminated. They belong to history. They are at the heart of history. But think Christ away for a moment with all he has spoken and done and wrought immediately history falls to pieces. It has lost its heart, its kernel, its center, its distribution. It loses itself in a history of races and nations, of nature and culture peoples. It becomes a chaos without a center and therefore without a circumference, without distribution and therefore without beginning or end, without principle and goal, a stream rolling down from the mountains, nothing more. But Revelation teaches that God is the Lord of the ages and that Christ is the turning point of these ages, and thus it brings into history unity and plan, progress and aim. This aim is not this or that special idea, not the idea of freedom or of humanity or of material well-being but it is the fullness of the kingdom of God, the all-sided, all-containing dominion of God, which embraces heaven and earth, angels and men, mind and matter, cultists and culture, the specific and the generic, in a word, all in all, end quote. Amen. If that doesn't get you to read Inc., I don't know what will. Right, right. Yes. And it
1: also gets it at, at the idea, um, I think something Lewis says is, uh, That the incarnation makes sense of all the other miracles so that we don't think of all the other miracles as these little tiny invasions of supernatural into nature. But the incarnation shows us that the supernatural is actually uh, engaged in a full on campaign of total conquest and inhabitation. Right. Uh, So, right. If you remove that central miracle of God coming Mm. uh, into man you don't have, you, you have, n- you, nothing makes sense. You couldn't make sense of reality. And this is important for Christians to really, you couldn't make sense of the coherence of reality and all the shadows and all of the gestures that we find in reality that point towards the, something like the incarnation. Um, and if you don't have that, well, then, you know, their purpose and meaning and all of these other things that we try to make sense of fall away.
0: Right. And maybe the most immediate way, you know, be interesting to talk about maybe the most immediate way the church made, made sense of Christ was partially in the language of uh, temples, because of course in the ancient world, it was sort of the, in the ancient world and Israel is not obviously an exception here. we, We perhaps lose a little bit of the significance of exactly what's going on in the temple yes you know the temple is this this place where god kind of comes down in a kind of physical reality but the presence of god uniquely rests in it um and it's sort of this fusion point it's almost the 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 temple is almost kind of you know ground zero in in a weird sort of Mythological imagination, sort of the ground zero of creation ex nihilo. In fact, there's images, I think, in the Psalms. Uh, I think it's John Levinson who points this out in one of the Psalms that there's almost this image of the temple as kind of the the capstone that's holding back the forces of chaos, such that if you sort of knocked the temple over, you'd unleash, <laughs> you yeah. kind of unleash the disintegration of creation, because it's the final, it's the cornerstone. It's the, it's the thing that holds it all together in a particular way. And this would have been even more a robust sort of way to imagine something about the temple in uh, ancient cities, you know, around the ancient Near East. But it's interesting to think that in the New Testament um, it's and there were there was always this thread in, in ancient thought, including Israelite thought of sort of the temple is in one sense, kind of the cosmos yep. is, is, the, is the site of God's presence. But then there's man himself who is uniquely related to God. And then there's the temple itself that man's where man meets God. And what's interesting in the New Testament is. Um, you know, this is before Nicaea, you know, the New Testament isn't sitting around thinking about the Council of Nicaea. Right. The Council of Nicaea does come 300 years later, you know, but it is, or, or yeah, about 300 years later, but it is, it is nevertheless drawing on the New Testament, but the immediate backdrop of kind of the New Testament's conceptual apparatus is very much, you know, here was the Logos and he came and he tabernacled among us.
1: Yeah, John kind of,
0: Here's kind of the light coming into the world, just as the cloud sort of comes into the cosmos. Um, And that would be in some way, the kind of natural way to think about this, at least in those, those early centuries and develop from a sort of Christ as the special temple where... Yeah, and and in fork, this is this is why there's so much controversy in the ministry of Christ, right? Is that he relativizes the significance of the temple, mm-hmm. you know, for the Jews. This is a huge. And in fact, I've just been reading through Acts and the amount of the amount of um, controversy that happens with Paul over his relationship and the relationship of the early Christian movement to the temple, uh, is just you know absolutely crucial in understanding the New Testament and its development. And it's kind of out of that that Paul We'll begin to reflect in a broader way on Christological themes. And in the early church, it's sort of like the the thing itself happens first. It's sort of like here, the temple here, everything that's going on in the temple, that 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 centerpiece that kind of pools all of reality and holds all of its structures and its meaning together Uh, here. All of a sudden we realize, oh, that's not the thing itself. Right. All of that logic of the temple and of the sacrificial system was really just a copy. And that's not how they would would have tended to think of it. And it's not how the ancient Near East would have thought of it. They wouldn't have thought of their temples. You know, the temple is, the, you know, the, the earthly manifestation of, you know, whatever, you know, but it's not to be succeeded with anything else. But the idea that here in a person, in a history, in a story, in a body, really, the temple of a body, you see that 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 perfect kiss, as it were, between God and creation in the form of a man. Um, uh, You know, I think that's maybe the first way that the church begins to think about this is here's the temple. And then, you know, the epistle to the Hebrews is written that way, right? Let's think about all of these things that to us were the thing you know maybe we would have been tempted to think here's the thing uh and we realize in light of the thing arriving (laughs) that they weren't the thing they were they were a portal they were a gesture as all of reality is toward the singularities that is the christ himself if anybody's interested in that because of course it's time to be thinking about the incarnation and like uh how to think through this one of the best books um that you'll find on the development of early christian uh early christian doctrine of the christ you know just how did they conceive of the deity of christ Probably the best project I'm aware of out there is uh, Crispin Fletcher Lewis's Jesus Monotheism. The first volume has been published. It's going to wind up being four volumes. Hmm. But Jesus Monotheism is an excellent, excellent treatment of the earliest Christian articulation of the Christ, you know, long before Nicaea. And if you kind of want to fill in the gaps to Nicaea, maybe the two other volumes I'll just mention very, very briefly Um, God Visible by Brian Daly. This is a patristic Christology reconsidered. Uh, What Brian Daly is trying to do in this particular work very helpfully is sort of not not think immediately in terms of Nicaea and Chalcedon. So, you know, when you read your, your apostolic fathers, you read your Irenaeus, you read your origin, don't assume the debates that are coming 100, 200, 300 years later what are they arguing about in their own context? How do we reconstruct how they're thinking about the the deity of Christ and the relationship between the divine and the human in Christ within their own immediate backdrop? Which, you know, again, can be argued as a gesture toward Nicaea, but it has slightly different connotations. But if you want to get to the Nicene debate, uh, I think still the classical, the classic text at this point is uh, (laughs) a... If for the, for the not faint of heart, I'm, I'm, I'm holding up the uh, width of it here. Uh, but the search for the Christian Doctrine of God by RPC Hansen published I think in the 80s, but it's a mammoth you know 900 page book on the Aryan controversy and all the little, all mm. the little things that were being debated in the Aryan controversy and how it was actually a pretty complex debate. Uh, which is a long-winded way of saying, "Hey, this is a complicated debate. It's not. It's not simple." Sure. Uh, Lewis is helping us, but if you, if anybody's interested in the kind of exegetical and historical wing of the debate, those are some really helpful resources to get you to, uh, to think through that. Yeah, I was. Uh, uh,
1: I've been looking back at my uh, bookshelf because you mentioned uh, the temple motif, and I think that that's just right. Actually, that's a that is a very helpful way to have Christians orient themselves with the sort of historical development of how the ancient Israelites would have viewed God and his dwelling among them. You even mentioned, uh, it's, it's in the furniture of the temple. It's in the artwork inside of the temple. It's even in the garden. Um, and Douglas Moo's, uh, good book, um, the Temple and the Church's Mission is fantastic on this. He has a sort of distilled- You mean,
0: you mean Greg Beal?
1: Greg Beal. I'm sorry. What did I yeah. say?
0: You said Doug Moo.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. But that's yes. okay.
0: We forgive you. We're, we're <laughs> a compassionate you. program.
1: Right. Especially this time of the year.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Beal's book, uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission is just fantastic. And he has a sort of reduced uh, form of that called God Dwells Among Us. That's really good. And then Richard Barcelos has getting the garden right. That also teases this out. But that was written as a polemic against uh, New Covenant theology. But it's nevertheless helpful to see these motifs and how they develop from Genesis all the way to Revelation, right. where we have the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. But, but you're right. The Israelites would have uh, been expecting for Messiah to come and dwell among them. And they they would have expected that because of their duty in the temple it was sort of right. Psalm, Psalm 110 stuff right like the world is God's footstool and and the temple is the uh, place wherein God from heaven reaches down into creation and dwells in a particular yeah. way. yeah
0: what's what's really interesting about Christ of course is that he's both temple and high priest yeah you know so he's both the temple Um, the New Testament is going to kind of use Christ to talk about or use the temple to talk about what's going on with Christ. But it's also the role of high priest. And maybe, maybe it's worth talking about this because the um, one way to think about the incarnation that I think is so helpful, there's a dimension perhaps that we often miss here. And that is that it's not just, if we could put it this way, that, that the, the human face of Jesus Christ is the most concrete face of God that human beings will ever encounter. It's the most concrete. It's the most uh, 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 specific, you know, in a way. You know, and I even think of Lewis. You know, till we have faces, right? right? You know, it's the face of God toward us. That's what's going on with Jesus. Christians, we all, we all look forward to that time when we will be in glory. And I think this is so crucial. Christ is still a man. He's actually resurrected. This is a glorious truth. He ascended into heaven as resurrected and ascended into heaven as a body and is still a man. And when we come to glory, we will embrace the body. You know, Every Christian yes. will be able to touch, mm. to touch a person whose face is looking at us and is the closest is 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 the most concrete face of God, you know, behind the eyes of Christ is an infinite person uh, staring at you with human eyeballs in the mode of humanity, and I think that that's a that's a glorious thing that we look forward to, a comfort that we look forward to. We would we would feel an enormous sense of loss, I think, as Christians, if we thought we would get to glory and would not be able to embrace the body. Of Jesus, That's yeah. something we look forward to. But the other side of that, and I think this is so crucial, is that Christ is also the priest. He's also the face of man toward God. That's what's so interesting. He's also man. He's also the second Adam. He's also us, yeah. our elder brother, looking from the direction of creation toward God. So he's God looking at us. He's the face of God toward man, but he's also in his own person the face of man toward god such that he's entering into the temple and he's approaching god and saying these are my people here is my sacrifice and and, and all of us come with him you know i love that um somebody once explained union with christ to me in this funny there's this fun scene in goodwill hunting where uh uh or uh you know it's kind of one of the most famous scenes in the movie where uh what's his what's the matt damon Damon. right matt damon he's at the bar and uh you know there's kind of the cool kid uh you know what a grad student or whatever you know kind of being mouthy with all his intellectuals and this working class matt damon is sort of like just schooling this guy and just like taking him down notch after notch after notch and showing how derivative and like actually not serious that guy is uh And his friends come up to Matt Damon and they just say to everybody, we're with that guy. So they like get a kind of street cred osmosis, you know, by virtue of being with Mm. that guy. Uh, Or maybe that's a crass way of talking about what it's like to be united to Christ Mm. (laughs) is that his face toward God by union with him, our elder brother, we get to say, hey, we're with that guy yes. <laughs> you yeah know, and that's and, the face of man toward God and that's a you know that's another side of the deep comfort is not just that he's God toward us but that he's also our elder brother facing toward yeah. God and in whom we get to you know we choose whose victory we share in
1: yeah and that's really what we do during Christmas we think about those things you know i I have uh, one Christmas album that I'll just play on repeat every time I'm in the car, and I won't. And I won't name it because I don't want to open myself up to scrutiny. Oh no, I want to know uh, what it is. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, one of my favorite songs in the album is he's getting at that. He's getting at that sentiment where uh, we don't have a God that doesn't understand our pain. We don't have a God that that is you know sort of aloof with our struggles. He he knows us. Intimately, and he knows us intimately because he came down here and took on this, he took on the form of a human. Mm. Uh, and it's in that capacity and, and and suffered all the things, suffered all of the psychological stuff, too. Right. Uh, perhaps what we can do with Jesus sometimes is like think of him as a superman that actually never felt a pang of sadness. I mean, Jesus wept, right? At the the sight, at the fact that Lazarus was dead. He feels the pang of sadness when it comes to death in the same way that we do, because death in one sense is really the most unnatural condition of man. Right. And so that's why in the incarnation, life itself came into creation To overcome the most unnatural part of creation, which is things dying, and to usher in eternal life. And that's why we need God to do that. You need the eternal source of life to overcome the brokenness of of reality and usher in a new epic of eternal life that we threw away in sin. Um, So that's what we're thinking about. It's not only Jesus in the manger, it's Jesus as a fully as a fully grown mature man suffering all the things that we suffer in this world and looking at him and recognizing that our hope lies in the fact that we will have that beatific vision one day. And right. that he, he sees us as we really uh, totally unraveled before him, no pretension. There's no, there's going to be no need to sort of cover up our insecurities or whatever. And during the Christmas season, that's where, and that's why, I, by nature, I'm just sort of like a sappy, sentimental dude, anyway. Uh, but during during the Christmas holiday, I I feel that extra sort of comfort that my Creator came and He is bearing my burdens with me, and He's there mm. for me. And He started off uh, in this manger as a little baby. And I don't know. It's just a it's a beautiful time of the year to really reflect on all of that stuff.
0: Well, it's it's it's. You know, all of reality is the story of coalesces. I mean, some people find this arrogant, I think, but I think there's there's a way in which I think we'd have to say it's undeniably true that it reality is the story of mankind and Christ is man par excellence. Yeah. You know, it's the story of this life. It's the story of this one life. And I think the other thing to keep saying there is that it's a continuing life. It's the story of this life, uh, life, death, and resurrection, but a life that is still continuing and right now reigning in heaven. That is, that is, yes, exactly that 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 centerpiece around which all turns. And of course, there's, as we wrap up here, you know, there's there's so many other threads we could pull apart, right? You know, like one thing that I find fascinating is the relationship between Christ coming the, the the relationship between God's presence in the human nature of Christ and God's presence in this mysterious character the angel of the lord right in the old testament And what's the continuity between those two things? And how does that teach us about God's, you know, in Lewis language, God's invasion of history. Um, uh, Van Dorn, I think is his name, has just written probably the book on the angel of the Lord, arguing that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, which is a very classical, you know, Christian position, but he gives such uh, apparently profound exegetical weight to it. And so if you're interested in you know, sort of, sort of knowing your Bible a little bit better on that front as well. That's a really interesting text to pick up because that's also going to help you understand what the New, how the New Testament is reading, what's going on with this enigmatic enigmatic character of the Christ. Mm. Um, uh, Right. Any other thoughts, Dale?
1: Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe it'd be fun to see if we can get uh, Mr. Van Doren and, and rope him in for a conversation that would be excellent i've been looking yeah we should to...
0: get, we should get van dorn on here yeah, yeah he'd be a fun he'd be a fun guest
1: he would be a fun guest he's fun to interact with on facebook and he seems he just seems like a swell chap uh but um i got nothing i mean of course you and i could talk about this forever we could right. just continue <laughs> to talk about this because uh, there's so much more but anyway um yeah i think that uh as we maybe a parting a parting thought for christmas um, and I realized that Christmas is also a sor- the source of deep pain for a lot of people. Um, it's sort of markers of, of traumatic episodes in life. Uh, but maybe we should all just uh, sort of sit back and are quietly separate ourselves from all the tech and all the bustle of uh, shopping and, and, you know, kids screaming and running around and just reflect on the fact that, Uh, God came uh, to be with us. He came to dwell with us, and he has done that in the person of Christ, and that's something that should we should find comfort in all year, uh, but particularly this time of the year where the church has historically sort of understood that this is what we're celebrating. Um, so I guess from the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, and uh, as always, you can uh, check us out on YouTube by going over to davenantinstitute.org. Uh, you can also look us up on Facebook And uh, of course, we're on iTunes and we're also on Spotify and any other podcast catcher that you download podcasts to. So uh, you can join the Facebook group if you want to be part of the conversation. We've been uh, developing a pretty cool community there. Uh, That's been really fun getting to interact with our listeners. Um, And uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you so much.
0: See you.